this is the recording made in the chapel of the opened book and we are commencing this evening a new study. It's the Son, the Son of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture that bears upon our subject together. So that those of you who are listening to this, if you care to join us, as I hope you will, you will read together with us the scripture that is before us, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 to 28. It is not my usual custom in this meeting or any other to read from a manuscript. Uh, But just in order to give me a start again this evening, and because I think it will cover the ground better and give an introduction to this new subject, the place of the sun and the purpose of God, I'm going to read the introductory lines that will one day, I hope, appear in print when they're handed over to Mr. Kenny under the title, The Sun, His Work from the Beginning unto the Glorious End and that end that God may be all in all. While the book of the Revelation is the last of the canon of Scripture and while it deals with a future kingdom, and a new heavens and a new earth. The purpose of the ages runs on beyond the day of the Lord, is succeeded by the day of God, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12, which in its turn, though hidden in our authorized version translation, is the day of the age, 2 Peter 3, 18, which Moffat observed and translated to the day of eternity. Now that's a great expense of time, isn't it? From the beginning, whenever that was, through what we call time, and then the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of eternity, the day of the age to which all this moves. It is this day that Paul envisaged when he said, Then cometh the end. A passage that must receive a fuller exposition later in this study. Now, if you look at that passage, 2 Peter 3, chapter 10 to 12, I'll give you time to find it, 2 Peter, chapter 3, 10 to 12, you will find that I will give you just a little different translation to the two verses. 2 Peter 3, 10 The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, in which, I want you to notice that, the Greek words are small n and he, in which, the heaven shall pass away with a fervent heat. Now, the other verse, looking forward to the coming of the day of God, you see the difference between the day of the Lord and the day of God, because of which, die him, the heaven shall melt with a fervent heat. You see, it doesn't repeat itself and make a mistake. It says that one day is preparing for the other day. And by closely observing the little words, which are most important, instead of it being a repetition without meaning, it carries us on. By recognising the change of preposition, the preposition N to the preposition dire, we see that the day of the Lord 
prepares for and leads up to the day of God, wherein dwelleth righteousness. This is the day of eternity, beyond which scripture does not take us, except to assure us that the work of the Son has at length been completely brought to a conclusion, that every form and aspect of enmity or opposition subdued under his feet, and God at long last, not merely all, but God all in all. We who by unspeakable grace belong to the high and holy calling of the Church of the Mystery, potentially seated together in heavenly places in Christ now, are a faint foreshadowing and in anticipation of that day. For even now, in the Church of the One Body, Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11, where the image of him that created the new man has been put on and in connection with which principalities and powers have been triumphed over Colossians 2.15 and when the head of the serpent shall not only be bruised under feet but like the last enemy shall be destroyed. The millennial kingdom is ruled over by a delegated authority by angels, by the twelve apostles who shall sit on twelve thrones by the resurrected David, Jeremiah 30 verse 9 during which that old serpent, the devil, shall be imprisoned in the bottomless pit. This kingdom, however, blessed, ends in disruption, revolt and judgment. The sun alone brings the purpose of the ages to its glorious fruition. And the little passage that I've lifted out and put in structure form is 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. The first member, then come at the end, is answered by the last member, verse 28, then God shall be all in all. Now in between are the steps that are taken to bring that about. Verse 24, when? When? Verse 27, 28, when? When? Four steps in time. Then further reason. In the middle, four, he must run, he must reign. And in verse 26, four, all things under his feet. And then in 25 and 26, all enemies subdued and the last enemy. Now that's complicated, but when you see it for yourself, it will make it obvious. The voluntary subjection of the Son to the Father at the moment when he had universal sovereignty and dominion is a theme that we can only ponder with wonder. It is entirely in harmony with the spirit manifested in Philippians 2.15 and entirely the reverse of that vaulting ambition indicated in the blasphemous assumption the original cause of the evils that are in the world, namely the daring claim of Lucifer who said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This awful being made the earth to tremble and who made the world a wilderness, Isaiah 14, which passage is 
is a glance back to Genesis 1 verse 2 when the earth became without form and void. The mystery of iniquity has not been explained but the scripture makes it plain that there is an enemy at work who could claim without fear of contradiction that all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them claiming according to Luke 4, 6 that this had been delivered unto him. Now this word delivered, the Greek paradidomi, exactly the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 when he shall have delivered. You notice, these are worth pondering. It had been delivered to Satan. We have to go carefully over this. But he claimed it and spoke about it in the day of our Saviour's humiliation. But when the day of glory dawns, that deliverance will be entirely opposite. It will be delivered to the Father, that God may be all in all. This word, paradidomi, to deliver up, is used of the Saviour when it is translated betrayed in Matthew 27, Delivered in Romans 4 and he gave himself in Galatians 2 and chapter 5. It's a wonderful word worth collecting and pondering. Here is the absolute contrast. No self-seeking, no self-exaltation, no usurpation, but meekly accepting the cross and all its consequences. The Son had all things under his feet. He had thee named as above every name. Every knee bowed in worship. Every tongue confessed that he was Lord. But in direct and blessed contrast with Lucifer, son of the morning, he voluntarily and blessedly submitted himself that the purpose of the ages should be attained. I hope you have with you this little card on which the word son has been uh, dealt with and I think for the moment we will turn our attention to this particular aspect of our study. There are words both in Hebrew and in Greek that it is well for us to remember. We know the word bar because it comes in the word bar abbas at that very moment when Christ stood before Pilate and Christ was the son of his father, there was another one who stood before Pilate and his name was Barabbas, he was the son of his father and there was the two of them. No accident about that. It was the conflict of the ages. Which son and which father is to dominate and be enthroned? And that's the conflict that goes on. Why? beyond our ability to explain. But if we don't accept it, you might as well shut the Bible, for it's full of it from the beginning to back to the last page. That word bar is translated in the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 19, as the only one that is loved. It's a term particularly of affection. It comes in the word bar followed you, uh, Bartimius, and you will know that there are several words in the scriptures where it is used. But the other word 
in the Old Testament language is the word Ben. Uh, Joseph is called Ben-Yavin or Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And we get to running through the scriptures quite a number of folks by that name. The word Ben comes from the root Bina to build. And you might like to turn to two passages that will illustrate its use in this sense of a family. Deuteronomy 25 verse 9 Deuteronomy 25 verse 9 And the other passage, if you care to find it as well, 1 Samuel 16.22. But Deuteronomy 25 verse 9 first. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build. You see, that son is the one that's the building going on, the building of that family tree and that family name, that will not build up his brother's house. And in 1 Samuel 16.12, we have another use of the, same use of the word, but a different context. 1 Samuel 16.12, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Wait a minute, and now he was ruddy and with all a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. So we have the thought that a son who was beautiful, a son fair to the eyes, was one that would build up the family. And then when we come to the New Testament, we have a word which is rather difficult to pronounce in English because it starts with the letter H and the vowel U-I-O. The only way we can pronounce it is Huayos. Huayos. And the word comes into the term which we use so much, the word Huayothesia, which is translated adoption. Now, with regard to the way in which these words are used, it says in um, with regard to the to the word I'm just trying to find the, the passage. Oh yes. This word is used in the Hebrew Ben to characterize anyone as to his origin and nature. The points which determine his character and idiosyncrasies. Hence in the Old Testament you see, you've got to be watchful that you don't invest the word son with an idea of having a father and a mother and limit it to that. Because, look, we read of the sons of Belial, the sons of lawlessness in Judges. We read of the son of death in 1 Samuel. The Hebrews shall surely die. And also in the New Testament, the sons of Gehenna, the son of perdition, the son of consolation, and the sons of disobedience. Also, in the prophet Isaiah, he speaks about a very uh, well-planted 
on his plantation, on a hill, as a son of oil. A son of oil. And earlier in the scriptures, the word father is used in the same way, having no connection really with birth, simply, but with sort of being an author or a beginner. So we have the father of all those who handle the harp and the organ. I should be involved myself if I maintained that because my sister plays the organ, that she and I go back to the descendants of Cain. Doesn't follow, does it? It simply means that they originated it. Another one of the sons was the father of those who worked in metals and so on. So we've got to be careful to remember that the word son not only means one who's actually been born into a family, but that son represents. And that's the great thing with regard to Christ. I would ask any of us, if we were challenged, you'd have to answer in the terms of Scripture, have you seen God? No. No man has seen God at any time. What well, in the Old Testament, God is said to have spoken to Moses and the man speaks to his friend. But if you look far enough, it says, and the similitude of God did he behold. And so we have Christ set before us as one that represents uh, God in that sense. I'll give you the passage where it speaks about a son of oil, in case you wish it. That's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Because we are not using the Hebrew language now as a spoken language, although it's coming out again in Palestine. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved teaching the vineyard. My beloved hath a vine, a vineyard, in a very fruitful hill. And we'll find that the horn of the son of oil is the pictorial way in which the Hebrew language speaks of that rather profitable, well-planted vineyard. Now we come to the New Testament. There's another word which means a son. It's a word technon, and it is derived from the word which means to bear, and is buried, as it were, or reminiscent in the word bairn for a child. But I think we must now be prepared to discover that there is a different intention when the scripture uses the word child than when it uses the word son. Now, if you stick to your authorised version, you will read many a passage where it says son, where it ought to say child, and vice versa. Will you look at 1 John chapter 3, just by way of illustration? 1 John chapter 3. It's a well-known passage, quoted many times, and uh, would be known to us all, I'm sure. This deadly silence is getting these pages unstuck, but there it is. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, 
because it knew Hitler. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it's not only to appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that may pass, but at the same time, I think you want to remember that John ministers to the family of faith. And the Apostle Paul ministers to the firstborn son in the faith. And there are passages where Paul is quoted as using the word children where it ought to be translated son. Now you say, well, that's a very, very uh, uh, sort of hair-splitting. But it isn't, friends. I can't imagine that if you happen to be the firstborn son and your parents have died and the solicitor is reading the will, did you say it's hair-splitting that the firstborn son should be considered the rightful heir? You see, it's emphasising inheritance, particularly when it uses the word son. It's emphasising family relationship among many when it emphasises the word children. Well now, I'm glad to be able to say this, that even though you may not be able to read the Greek, if you've got the revised version, you'll discover that they've gone to the trouble of putting each one of these correctly. The revised version can be trusted, in this case, that where the word is technon, child, it says children. And where the word is huios, son, it says son. Well now to bring this introductory study to a conclusion, you will notice at the bottom of the chart at which you're looking, we have this word adoption. Now this is an old story with many of us, but so is the gospel. And I hope that some of you would endorse the children's hymn, Tell Me the Story Often. And possibly you'd say, it's still true of me, for I forget so soon. Is that so? Well, if it isn't, we must do it, because we're ministering to a wider congregation than the elite that gather of these evenings at the chapel. Now, this word adoption, wyo thesia, is made up of two parts. Wios, you already know, you already know is the word for a son. Tethia is the word for place. Now, it's hardly the right expression to say a person has been placed as a son when you're announcing a birth. And it doesn't mean to, to be born. It means to be given the dignity of a firstborn in a family. And... This goes back to the times when it was in constant use in the days of the Apostle that a man may have a slave in his employ, a Roman may have a slave or a Greek may have a slave and that slave may have been so faithful as some of them were they rose to great power, these slaves that served their master that the master sometimes redeemed them and gave them the adoption. There's practically not one of the Roman emperors that ever succeeded his father. They were nearly all massacred and poisoned by somebody, and the one that succeeded had been adopted into the family, and took the family name Claudius or whatnot, and tacked it onto his own. Now this has been set forth in the Epistle to the Galatians, 
and the Romans and in Ephesians and in other places. First of all, I want you to compare Romans 9 with Ephesians 1. Romans 9. Here the apostle, who was a Hebrew and knew the blessings that that accumulated in the mind and purpose of God with regard to that people. He spoke about his heaviness of heart when he thought of the unbelief of the Jew. He says, verse 3 of Romans 9, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Now if he stopped there, you could argue he meant the Christian church over all his brethren. But I'm sure that nobody here who is of Gentile origin would think that the apostle would call him my kinsman according to the flesh. I don't know what some people do with the scriptures, but that is a thing we cannot tolerate. When the apostle spoke of his kinsmen according to the flesh, he must have meant the ones that we speak of as Israel. Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well now what does he say about them? Who are Israelites? To whom? What's the first thing he's going to mention as, as a dignity that belongs to them? To whom pertaineth the adoption? The adoption. Well, in what way were they adopted? Go back to the history of, the, of these nations in Genesis. In Genesis 10, you have a list of 70 nations, all given their names. And then in Genesis 12, you have Abraham called out. One of the things that I, I remember, a man was quite staggered when I contradicted him. I said, Abraham was never a Jew. He was a Gentile. And if you read Romans 4, it looks as though the Apostle upset the Jews when he wrote and said, when Abraham was justified by faith, was he in circumcision or uncircumcision? He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. There were no people ever called Jews till after Judah was born. That was his grandson. Now in what way can we say that Israel, the nation, were God's firstborn? If there were 70 nations already in existence, before ever Abraham was called. Well, it was called God placed one nation. He said of Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. Using the word, not disparagingly, the Jew is an artificial nation. It was by the decree of God that his descendants should be separated from all others. And when Moses went back to Egypt, and demanded that God should let his people go. God says, for Israel are my firstborn. Now, it didn't mean to say that Moses didn't know what he'd already written in Genesis, that there were 70 nations in existence before ever a Jew was born. But he didn't hesitate and say to God, well, I think we slipped up there. No, he went and demanded that this people who had this adoption. So, in the family of faith, there is a firstborn's position for the Jew. In the flesh. Well, what have you got in the flesh? Will you turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and see what you've got to put over against Israel's position if it were challenged. In the flesh they have one thing and another and it ends up of whom as concerning the flesh Christ 
came. That's the Jew. Now look at this. Ephesians 2 verse 12. That at that time, you were without Christ. You had no Christ. That is to say, nobody among you ever anticipated that scripture was going to be fulfilled unto us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. It wasn't given to you as Gentiles. You were without a Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, they're without God in the world. Now they cannot be on a par, can they, with Israel. In the flesh, they're hopelessly outclassed. I get those words in the flesh from the preceding verse. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, and in the flesh you're out of it. Israel dominate. Now look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, without altering that translation, anyone in his senses knows that this is long before Abraham and long before Adam. Our Saviour uses the expression, Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so here we have a very different calling. And that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us, marked us off beforehand unto the adoption of children. What a pity. It's the adoption of sons. This is the adoption. Now you cannot possibly say it's all one and the same as Romans 9. For that was Israel according to the flesh who had the covenants and the law and the promises. And Ephesians 2 says, you poor Gentiles had none of them. But he says, don't despair that has been revealed to me as the Lord's prisoner since the failure of Israel temporarily, that God met that long before it took place. And he has a company, and blessed be God, some of them are sitting, listening to me now, who without boasting can say that they know they are the adopted into that part of the family of faith which will never inherit Jerusalem on the earth and will never inherit the new Jerusalem in the heavens. But they are not thinking they're being cheated, for they have a position where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all heavens. So unless we discriminate, we shall lose tremendously, and we shall be misleaders instead of lights. Then if you turn to Galatians 3, we shall get just a word or two to guide us with regard to this question of the adoption because Paul has used it there in Galatians 3 and 4. Now he starts by speaking to them in verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Now when the apostle uses an expression like that, he's not going to quote scripture. He's going to speak about something that they knew. And sometimes I think we make a mistake. We feel we ought to keep, keep closely to the word of God, and that may be very wise. But if you're speaking to what we call the man in the street, 
who doesn't know A from B with regard to the scriptures. The language is strange to him. He doesn't know just what you intend by it. And you may be stopping him rather than helping him. Why not speak to him after the manner of men? Put the word of God in his own terms first and then leading on to the stricter truth as time goes on. Well, anyhow, that's what the apostle did here. I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, now that word is used by the Galatians in the days of the Apostle Paul and confirmed by writings and statuary and so on, that that referred to making a will. Making a will. Now the law for making a will in Galatia and the law for making a will today are different. If once you make a will and the person to whom you've left all your property or money turns out to be a, ra- a rascal or a rogue, you can go and have another one. You could alter it. You couldn't do that if you were in Galatia. Because making the will involved the tribe and the inheritance and all the amount of things to do with customs and temple worship and whatnot that you had to ponder very carefully before you put it down in black and white. But he says this, Though it be but a man's will, yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannul it, or addeth thereto. Now that's not true today, you see. I've not left any money to you friends sitting listening to me, but if I had, I'd have the right to cancel it all. Wouldn't I? I'm glad you agree. But you see, not in Galatia. He had to get it properly worked out first before he committed himself. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he says, do you mean to tell me that you can make a will that's unalterable and God cannot? So he says, um, verse 17, and this I say, and when he says that, he many times says, this is what I'm trying to say. This is what I'm out to say. This is what you do listen to. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ. See, where once it's confirmed, nobody alters it. Well, he said God has confirmed it. The law which came in 430 years afterwards, the law that was given at Mount Sinai, could never upset the unconditional promise made to Abraham. You see? That comes in, by the way, and has its consequences and its... um, difficulties, but he said just as surely as a man in Galatia when he's appointed the adoption is bound by his own promise and can't alter it so surely he's God not in a wrong sense so I'll show you where the adoption comes in in chapter 4 and I think if I read the first uh, seven verses we may be able to just get it onto the tape now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the father. Now that's ordinary, common uh, appointment by an ordinary human father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, that meets the Gentile, made under the law, that meets the Jew, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So that you see, you have three different aspects of adoption. We have the Jew, nationally. We have those who are the children of Abraham spiritually, verse 29 of chapter 3. And then we have the church of the one body in Ephesians, which is different from them altogether, going back before the foundation of the world, going up to where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Well, that's an introduction to a subject which I hope is going to touch the hearts of us all as we trace in the scriptures, right from the beginning, before the world was, right to the end, when all dispensations, ages have come to a close. The whole thing is vested in this one who is the Son. Not till that, from beginning of creation to its end, when God shall be all in all, does God himself, as we speak of him, I don't know what I mean exactly when I say that, I'm only speaking because of the paucity of language and the difficulty of expression. Only then does he who is invisible come for us and a perfected universe will go on by the mercy of God forever. What a joy to think we belong to him. What a wonder that we belong to that company when we were outsiders as we were and we're now taken into this wonderful fellowship of being the firstborn in the company that belongs to the church of the one body.